James chapter 2, verse number 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself is not, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. If there were not another passage, I would rather skip over this was the one. So with that, let's pray for God's help because I shown enough needed up in here this morning. God, I confess that I need you this morning to speak through me, God. I need you to uh, illuminate your word to your people, God. Let it come alive, Lord, and may we have clarity of thought so that our hearts are activated by what you have already done inside of us, Lord. I pray, God, that when we leave this room all together, we would all collectively be able to say, look how glorious and gracious our King and Savior Jesus Christ is. In Christ's sake we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Who would have uh, thought that the 21st century would prove to be as dangerous as it is currently? If you, for some of you, this may be a, a long memory. In fact, it is a, a distant memory. In fact, I was a child when the Cold War emptied. And so at the end of the 20th century, we had the absence of the Cold War. We had the dismantling, at that time, nuclear threats. The word on certain people's lips were, I think things are finally under control. That was until... December 31st, 1999. You remember what happened? Nothing happened, right? But what was supposed to happen the next day? Chaos, the end of the world, Y2K, AI is going to take over and the Terminator is going to come through our, you know, the big giant computer monitor screens. At the end of the century or the millennium, we would have thought that maybe things are okay. It seems like the world is progressing. There is a little bit more peace now until we entered into the 21st century and we found ourselves 
that, my, my, we have greater challenges than we thought we would have in the 21st century. And, and, and really, if you, if you look at, not now, but I would, in fact, I wouldn't even suggest you to do this. If you Google what are the greatest threats in 2023 or the 21st century, you're going to find yourself in a long rabbit trail, and at the end of the trail, you're going to find yourself in a deep, dark disparity of life to where you just will, would just want to think, well, maybe it's just best that we get on out of here and do the Jim Jones thing. Because in two years, maybe that was a bad analogy, is particularly in the part we live. Uh, but if you if you think about uh, what what some of these alarmists are saying, in two years we're all doomed and, and we're all going to be dead. And then you begin to look at a list of what are the dangers that we face, and you see things, uh, you see things that are indeed significantly tumultuous. And they do, and I don't want to belittle them, they do seem as if they have a threat. I can think of my biggest threat right now, which is the cost of living. And, and indeed, that is an actual threat you will find that the world faces. You will see things like cost of living, natural disasters, climate change, cybersecurity, the AI threat, racism. The, we thought the nuclear war was over until the nuclear threat wasn't over. And then you get never-ending wars. And then if you read The Economist this week, um, I, I particularly, in my, in my news feed, I have several magazines that I read through, and in The Economist uh, tells us that the greatest threat in 2024, an actual article that was released this week, is none other but than the mean old Donald Trump. He's the biggest threat. Now, you may find that funny. I don't really care. It's, I, I don't think he's as big as a threat as some of these things that I outlined to you beforehand. The reality is, is that we, we don't um, need to look through a list of Google lists to find out that, yes, there are threats in our world. Yes, these things are real. But when I read my Bible, I'm in in whatever your eschatology is, and and really this is the the eschatology of the world is that we're all doomed. That's the eschatology of our culture. That's the eschatology of the economist. We're doomed if this guy gets back in office because we were doomed at the end of 2020, right? It, we're we're just all going to it's it's it, it's the end. Now, perhaps you may subscribe to that eschatology, but my eschatology is different. My eschatology is one of victory. That's my eschatology. And you don't have to go through your Bible that much to find out that God is sovereign, even despite nuclear threats, even despite world war threats and all of the things that seem to alarm us today. My God sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. And he is sovereignly Lord over, over all. Now, I begin that with you to tell you that as grave as some of these threats may seem, that is not the greatest threat that you and I face. James just outlined to us that the greatest threat that every single one of us 
face is not one of cataclysmic doom and gloom, but is the reality that it is possible to have a fake dead faith. And I don't know if that, you know, if, if that does something to you, but what that ought to do is cause you to start doing a little introspection this morning. That the greatest threat that anybody faces on this planet is whether or not I have the true faith in Christ. And, and here, this is, this is James yet again taking a play out of the playbook of his half-brother Jesus. Now, we know he wasn't a, a follower of Jesus when Jesus was teaching. But you just, when I read through James, I'm just sitting here thinking like, man, this brother was at least listening in to some of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And, we, and you, you can flip through Matthew. And I'm thinking Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus issues a very, very uh, a, 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 a warning that is similar in nature when he says, many will come to me in that day. And they'll say to me, well, didn't I do this? Well, didn't I do that? Well, I was such a great person. I cast out the devil and I was, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I had this big old big time ministry and, and uh, I was delivering people out the left and right. This is Matthew Thor's paraphrase. And then Jesus says to them, depart from me. You wicked person. I never knew you. That is in Matthew Thor's opinion, the most terrifying passage in all of scripture, hands down. And James is echoing that same language that it's very possible for some of you to come in here and pretend day after day, Sunday after Sunday, that you have this faith. I know all of my orthodoxical doctrines and I know all my, and I can, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the end times. And yet your faith is so fake. James gives us this warning. And I know what some of you are already thinking before we even dive into this text. Well, that just seems so mean. That's just the meanest thing you could ever say is to think, is to say to me that I could have a fake faith. I'll tell you the meanest thing I could ever say to you is for you to believe that you have a real faith when it is fake. And me say nothing at all about it. Now, like I said, I, I told you from the get-go, if there's a passage that I would like to skip, it's this one. Because there are many problems within this text that we're going to have to spend some time in digesting and, and really just chewing on this this morning. So he opens this up with that whole theme of, yes, indeed, some of you can be self-deceived. Again, there's that theme that James continuously uses throughout this passage. is self-deception. The reality of... Well, I'm a, you know, I, I can do a really good thing. And then you think that you're a Christian and a follower of Christ, but you're not. You, you, and he's been issuing, I mean, he's been like throwing out these warnings left and right. And he doesn't stop and he continues. It's possible for some of you, the greatest threat that you're facing right now is not you know, whether or not I'm going to be married or, or whether or not I'm going to get the house or whether or not I'm going to, you know, land the job. The greatest threat for all of us is do we have genuine faith in Christ? So he asked the question here. This challenge is presented to us in the question of, of verse 14 is one in which we need to, we got to pay a lot of uh, careful attention to. Look at this question. What good is it? 
my brothers and my sisters. If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, here's the individual who's making this big boast and this big claims about their understandings of faith. And, and, and in fact, they are good on their words, but they're absent in their deeds. I mean, I grew up in the South, and uh, everybody in the mama is a Christian, okay? And you're a Christian because, you know, mama and them, they, they went to church. And so you think that their faith is your faith. And then when you begin to look and dissect the fruit of their life, you find that, wow, maybe you're just fooling yourself. And I know none of y'all have that problem here in Utah. James is asking this question, what good is it if a man claims to have no faith or claims to have faith, but he has no deed? James is making it quite plain to us that sincere faith or a sincere claim to have faith is not necessarily synonymous with sincere faith. We can be sincere in our claim and yet, it's possible to be sincerely wrong, which is why this passage is so terrifying to us that we have to wrestle with. And in verse 15 and 16, he underscores the useless nature of such a claim when he says, well, let me illustrate it for you like this, all right? The futility of mere words seeking to alter the circumstances of the need. And he goes in there. And he's like, you know, and so you have this situation where there's a poor person, they need clothes, they, they need food, and, and the response of the self-proclaimed Christian is, well, I hope things work out for you. I know that's none of us in this room when we see somebody who has a great need and then the response is, I just hope that works out for you. You know, the poor is not going to thank you for your, your well wishes. And neither will God thank you for just simply saying that we have faith. Again, James is, what I would just suggest throughout the whole book of James, you see a lot of illustrations James uses are none other from his brother or his half-brother Jesus. Because you see it when he's in verse 17 in the application of his illustration when he says in the same way he says faith itself or lonely faith or this lonely faith is dead. Now again, I know that we, I say this quite often, but James was not initially a believer, but you've got to understand he, he, he has this perspective change when he meets the resurrected Christ. And we see that in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so James, again, is using a lot of illustrations that Jesus uses. And I'm thinking the illustration of Matthew chapter 25 later on in that chapter. When Jesus starts talking about, you know, uh, I, I, was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. It's where we get the famous verse as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And then he flips the table because the religious people are questioning, well, when did you see this? 
you know, they're all of a sudden like really on guard as if Jesus had been like stepping on their toes and kicking their shins a little bit. And Jesus flips the tables and he, and he says to those who saw needs around them and did not do anything, he says they will be tossed in the eternal flame of hell. Now, I know that's another one that's not very popular. You know, Jesus mentioned hell quite a bit. And the idea that we're just, you know, here and then all of a sudden we dissolve and there's nothing. That goes at odds with what Jesus says. Jesus says the same thing that James says. And the point that James is making is that some of you here, you say with your mouth, you profess that there is a God and then there is no fruit in your life that ever reflects that word of confession. And, and then what James is saying is the same thing that Jesus is saying essentially is that some of you are looking around and you see all the knees around you and what you are doing is sitting idly on your rear end with your hands tucked underneath your rear end and saying, you know what, somebody else can do it. It's just not going to be me. And the word of warning that Jesus gives that also James would want to give us is that you have fooled yourself and that person will be tossed in the lake of fire. Now, if you came here looking for such an encouraging word this morning, I'm so sorry. This is just where the text has found us here. Now, I have to address this because if I don't address them, it'll leave us all in chaos mode is that doing deeds doesn't mean salvation, okay? I know a lot of really good people in this world and they do a lot of good things. They do a lot of philanthropy and they do a lot of things that they're humanitarian aid and they want to make the world better, but yet when we start talking about the Jesus of Nazareth, I, I don't know about that Jesus guy. I mean, I know people, they've actually had those conversations with me. And I served on uh, uh, with, with organizations that did humanitarian work, built homes for the homeless. And on our board was a man who told me verbatim, listen, I get it, but this whole Jesus thing just doesn't make sense to me. And I do not understand how you could believe in a resurrected Christ. He's a great guy. But does doing great things with the absence of the confession of Christ being raised from the dead mean that he's going to go to heaven? Oh, absolutely not. Then the question, all right, you got to track with me here because my brain is racing. What was the need of the cross of Christ? Then there would be no need for the cross. Jesus' efforts would be pointless and his suffering would be in vain. If we can say that I'm a good person, I've helped the needy, I've fed the poor, I've given clothes off my back to help somebody, what, then, then what is the whole point of the cross of Christ? James is just making it clear that the presence of these deeds cannot be used to argue the presence of faith. And the absence of these deeds may be used to argue the absence of faith. Now, 
What James is saying, and I think what the church historically has said and believed, is that this gospel message that has seeded in our heart, led to us being justified, has then turned us into being, another big word for us, sanctified. We are justified, and then it moves us into sanctification. And the churches, they have known this, of what the power of the gospel can do. And I mentioned this to you a couple weeks ago when we talked about the story of William Wilberforce, the, the Protestant Presbyterian believer in England, who was, who was a, a, a political leader. It was because the gospel that illuminated his heart led him to the awakening of the dangers of slavery. And it was the one man, because of the gospel, and the gospel that moved his heart led to the eradication of the slave trade. You see? You see what happens now? It's the gospel it's the understanding of the gospel that penetrates us as a church. And the church historically has always understood that because of the gospel, there are ramifications. And those ramifications are for the good of the world. And it is for this thought. And it is for the priority of the gospel that will one day continue to, in, to lead to the eradication of Injust things that are taking place in our society. It will not be more, uh, and, and it won't be more, I, I don't know, protesting, and, and I'm not saying those things are bad. It, it's not going to be more of those things. It's going to be the gospel illuminating the hearts of our nation of our world to understand this is not right what we're doing. Murdering babies is not right. The gospel, and I believe it, the gospel will lead to the eradication of those things. It did it to slavery and it will continue to do it to unjust things. Again, your eschatology may be of defeat and doom and gloom. My eschatology, again, is that of victory because I know my Savior God reigns and he is victorious. Now, Spurgeon, who uh, is, is, you know, coined to say, we always say Spurgeon said this. We don't really know. It's just, it was a really good saying. And so we just got to... Spurgeon would probably be like, man, I didn't say that, but that was really good. I think he said this. Spurgeon is reputed to, said, uh, to, to have said, if you want to give a hungry man a track, wrap it in a sandwich. You guys remember tracks? All right, I'm thinking back in the 90s. Some of you were in existence in those days. Maybe it should have said, if you want to give a hungry man a sandwich, wrap it in a tract. Because in all of our giving and in all of our going and of all of our sharing, the cause of the gospel must remain at the core of what we do. And it is possible, and I'll move on to verse 18 in just a moment, just by way of passing. It is possible to collapse a biblical understanding of the gospel into a combination of just charity and morality. And you see denominations do this. You perhaps have seen... It, Maybe you left a church that did this, the collapsed, the purpose 
and the authority of scripture and the authority of the gospel and forsook it just for the name of morality or do good deeds. There's a danger that any church can fall into that. Verse 18, it says this, and some, someone will say, you have faith, well, I have deed. James is just saying, like, listen, we're not going to play this game here. And I think that this is just kind of one of those hypothetical dialogues that are taking place. My understanding is that you can sort it out on your own time. I'll give you what I think then, if that's okay. Uh, The answer that is dealing with this healthy blow to any attempt to suggest that faith and deeds may be separated. They cannot. That's what he's saying. And then he even looks at this person that says, well, I, I believe, I believe, I believe. Again, they have this, this orthodoxical doctrine and they have all these great things that they're saying. Their mouth is just filled with like intellectual things. And then James just throws in this little, just by way of passing it, like he just threw it in there. Like, oh, you know what? Even the demons believe. Like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, he's going to throw that in? Now, let's, let's, let's have a conversation real quick. Even the demons believe? Now, it... Are demons saved? No. If you said yes, I'd just be like, bro, I don't know if there's any hope for you, okay? No, they're not. They're not, and they will not be saved. They have rejected God. They've rejected God for eternity. Okay? Which is why this is so terrifying, isn't it? That we can have an orthodoxical view We can have a right understanding of the triune God and yet still be in the same category of the devil. What are we to do? Like, I don't know about you, but I look at this and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Right? Like, it seems and it appears like, good Lord, there seems like there's no hope for us. Again, this is what James has been doing for the past chapter and a half giving us a test. And the test is that if you continue to confess Christ with your mouth, you got all these fancy words down. You knew exactly when I said exegetical, you're like, I know what that means, brother. And when I said eschatology, you're like, yeah, brother, that's the end times, brother. And you're like, I'll tell you how the end times use. And like, you got it all down to a T. But here's the kicker. And this is Matthew's translation. This is my way of kicking all of us in the shins. You are a turd of a human being. You have fooled yourself. And you have a fake faith. All right. Now the difficult part. Now if that wasn't difficult, James um, introduces to us, and I wished I was out of time because I would so love to just skip this part. He calls a couple of witnesses to the stands here. Abraham and Rahab. And if you notice, there was a bit of conflict and a bit of, wait a minute, did James just say what I think he said? Now, he says, what I'd like to do right now, we're going we're gonna to talk to Father Abraham, who had many sons. 
nobody knows the rest of that song. We're doing good. If you don't, don't, don't. Uh, and we're going to call uh, Rahab. If you don't know that song, God has bestowed upon you a great blessing. And, and, and don't even Google it because then it becomes an earworm. And an earworm is a song that never leaves your brain. And you will thank me later or you will curse me out over the phone. Either one I can deal with. And so look what he's doing. He's destroying a pretense here of those who imagine that simply their declaring of a belief without evidence in their lives is saving faith. He says, you foolish man. Now, I've got to stick with my notes here because this can get a little tricky in pulling this out of the text and understanding this. So he says, let's call two witnesses to the stand. And first of all, he calls Abraham. The father Abraham is what he says. Wasn't our ancestor Abraham considered righteousness is what he says for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you don't know that story, that sounds terrifying. Wait, you're talking about a dude who tried to sacrifice his son? And some of you parents are like, well, actually, it's not a bad idea, but I'm digressing. And so you, you think like, what is going on? And he goes all the way through the staggering statement. If you look down at verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Really? Now this verse caused me a bit of trouble this week. And this, this whole section here caused me quite a, a bit of questioning. Wait a minute. Is James suggesting here that we're justified by works? I don't, I don't think so. And I'll quickly go through this because there seems to be a bit of contradiction between James and Paul in his letter to Rome. In fact, it is this particular passage where Luther initially said when he was going through the Reformation, we have got to rip James from the passages of the Bible. Wasn't later down in his sanctification where he corrected himself and finally understood its meaning. Why was Luther like that? Because of what Luther was being faced with. A doctrine of works. A doctrine of give penance. A doctrine of you do this, then you will be blessed. So there seems to be a little bit at odds in what Luther found himself at odds with in this particular section. Because it was Paul, after all, right, who told us that we, no one is justified by the works of the law. And you go back and read Romans 1 or 2 and you find that very quickly in there. Because the works of the law cannot save anyone. The works of the law cannot justify anyone is the big argument that Paul is making. Now, let me answer the question, then we'll unpack it quite a bit. James is picking up where, again, context is important. The people who profess to have come to a knowledge of Jesus. That's the context. And James is insisting that a genuine awareness of who Jesus is and what he has done will be evidence in good deeds. And that those good deeds are not the ground of our acceptance by God, but that they are the evidence of our acceptance of God. It is again why in we find 
Paul, again, writing to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, I'm thinking, where it says, how are you saved? He answers the question. Well, you're saved um, by grace. You have been saved through faith. And he goes on that it is not of yourself. It is not a working you can do. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that anyone may boast. And then he goes on to say, then what does he say in the next verse? For we are God's workmanship created for what? Sitting on our rear ends. No, he's saying the same thing James is saying. No, we're created for good works. But James is saying, well, it seems like there's a contradiction. I don't want to hear you folks rabbiting on about what you believe and you're telling me these things that are stirring up and round in your heads. You have a lonely faith. You're consuming and consuming and you're not imparting or you're not putting the things in practice. James says you have a lonely faith. I think it was Calvin who put it in a way, a very helpful way, uh, when we are talking about our justification before God. When Paul talks about justification, he's talking about our standing before God, which is by faith alone. Now, our faith, Calvin goes on to say, is not visible to the rest of Christ's body. What is visible, however, is the effect of our faith or the fruits of it, which would be our works. James is after the evidence, the manifestation of a right standing with God before others. We have to be careful to say that justification by faith and then smuggle in works that is also a part of our justification because that is antithetical to the gospel. So what Paul then, all of that by way of saying, to get us deeper into the weeds, Paul then and James are harmonizing perfectly on the point. But they're coming at it from two different perspectives. James doesn't mean the same thing by justified. And here's where it gets interesting because we have to look at the verb usage of the Greek word justified. James isn't using it in the same way of justify that Paul means by saying it in Romans chapter 3 verse 28. Paul means to be justified as our right standing or to be declared righteous by God. It is a legal standing, a legal declaration of us as righteous as God's righteousness has been applied to our account. James then, if this can clear up your confusion as it did for me, is using the verb in a different way to mean being demonstrated and proved. James was not looking that saving faith, but the fruit of it. And another way of saying it, that Paul is looking at the root. James was looking at the fruit. He is arguing that salvation clearly, yes, indeed, is faith alone. That is what Paul is saying. That's what the clear New Testament would say to us. But James would argue that a salvation that is devoid of good works and obedience 
to God's word is a fake faith. In other words, our father Abraham, the prostitute Rahab, what we would say in the south, there was proof in the pudding. And if there's no proof in your pudding, and that kind of sounds nasty, if there's no proof in your salvation, then you have a fake faith. It is clear that James would not say that you have, and you have to read the full, that's why like numbers, chapters, things were added like later on, just, you know, several hundred years ago. This was read as a one whole book to churches. And they just heard right out of the speaker's mouth that of chapter 1 verse 18. That the salvation is a gift from God. That you can't earn that salvation. That it is from God. But then he goes on to expound it. But anyone who says they have faith. And yet they do nothing but sit idly by they have a fake faith. Do you see what this does to us? This puts all of us in this room in quite a pickle, doesn't it? Because true faith in the living God will cause the fruit in us to grow. Now, there's no condemnation here. If some of you are saying, there's just no fruit. Listen, find freedom and forgiveness because there's grace for you and there is an opportunity for you to say, I repent. I have been a Christian by name only, by just my words, by just, you know, how knowledgeable I am just so I can look better to the people around me and yet my life has not reflected that. There. There's an opportunity for you to say, I repent of that. That's the clear call. Listen, Jesus Christ, okay? And, and this is how I would conclude this and land this plane that should have been landed 10 minutes ago. Jesus Christ died on the cross, not for some nominal Christian, not for an indifferent Christian, there is, and this is the argument that James is saying, that there is no such thing as an indifferent nominal Christian. For those people who have all these accolades and they, you know, they have all the words right, yet there is no evidence. That's what James is looking at. Is there evidence? That's the clear call. If you have so much knowledge... And you are proud of all the information you got. And you just come in here, you know, with this arrogance of, well, I've, I've got a word from the Lord. And yet everybody knows who you really are. Your co-workers can't even tell you're a Christian. James is just kind of sounding an alarm within all of us. You have a fake faith. You see needs around you and literally you don't do anything. See, that's what James was dealing with. A congregation of a church who believed that they were so chosen and they were so, like they had so much knowledge. 
And yet they saw all the needs around them and they did nothing. I, I, I find that a quite a bit of a challenge in my own life. And I find it a challenge, if I may, in our church. We can have all the head knowledge we want. We can learn all the doctrines of grace and all the doctrines of soteriology and eschatology and any other ology I can throw in there. And yet if our life does not reflect the gospel, you are in danger of the most cataclysmic event that will take place. And that is when you stand before our God and you say to him, oh man, I've been waiting to meet with you, God, because I can't wait to tell you everything I've done every knowledge that I have. And then he just looks at you perplexed and says, I'm sorry, who are you? I didn't know you. And that's what we are left with, is that do we have a real faith in Jesus, in Jesus who is the only way, the only truth, and the life?